We interviewed Mark Knoll for Jesus the Game Changer Season 2 at Wheaton College just outside Chicago. Mark is an esteemed historian and author, lecturing and teaching all over the world, and is currently the research professor at Regent College, Vancouver. He shares with us his insights into the Greco-Roman world of the early church and how Christians made an impact at that time. So Mark, what is it Jesus said that created a missionary movement that's basically lasted two millennia? I think the summation of the Gospel of Matthew, which has Jesus telling his disciples that they will be his witnesses into all the world and teach them the, the Gospel message making disciples, could be read as a kind of culmination of a message that deeply rooted in the particular work of God with the people of Israel, broadening now out to the work of God through this one Jewish rabbi, son of God, to the whole world. Many of those disciples that went out on mission actually faced a whole bunch of opposition. It, it, it's one thing to believe a message, it's another thing to give your life for it. Is there anything about Jesus that caused them to do that? Again, I, I think I would relate the, the power of the message of Jesus to the way in which his teaching and then life transformed what had been there originally as God's selection of one nation to bless the world, now funneling down to one person to bless the world. So the message of a, uh, a God-given revelation that would allow people in Israel to live for God now expanded to a revelation for all people to honor the creator of the universe who is also now the redeemer of sin, the redeemer from the, uh, the difficulties and the messes that humans make of their own lives. So the message, the person, and then the effect of the message and the person on the earliest followers, disciples, but there were women, of course, uh, in the early followers, and then the circles had just broadened out from Jerusalem to Judea and eventually the uttermost part of the earth. You had a book uh, on turning points in Christian history and a significant moment was when Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. What difference did that make? The question of what Constantine meant for the history of Christianity has been debated since the time of Constantine itself. Uh, positively, his conversion to the Christian faith, his favoring of Christianity meant that the stigma and the, the intermittent persecution that had affected Christians throughout the Roman Empire would at least come to an end or uh, materially stop. So there was greater liberty to travel. There was now the ability to pull together libraries, to build churches, to have stated times of worship and communion that were mostly free from outside persecution. Negatively, the uh, temptation, once having made it, was to think that the primary goal of the kingdom of God was to have power on earth. When before Constantine, people knew that life on earth was important, but because there was no hope of having any kind of power on earth, the key thing was to honor God first and then to let whatever else happen, happen. Since the time of Constantine, and I would say right to our present day, the various Christian movements have, been, have felt this tension. Do they live for the world to come and a universal message of God's salvation through Christ to everybody? Or do they live to make themselves stronger, more credible, uh, more resilient in the individual cultures in which they find themselves? And that was the dilemma, I think, that was posed for the Christian church by Constantine. There was success, but then there was also the temptation for corruption from that success. In those first 300 years, 
uh, of the early church. How would you describe the mission or missionary movement then? I think in many ways, the missionary movements of the first three centuries of Christian history are very similar to missionary movements in the non-Western world today. So in contemporary China, in the contemporary Middle East, um, there are Christian movements that operate uh, not in any kind of subterfuge, but try to operate beneath the level of visibility. Um, Western observers today are fascinated with the question, how many Christian believers are there in China? And I've heard on very good authority, including some Chinese Christians, they really aren't interested in that question. They're interested in how the movement of the faith can go from person to person, group to group, town to town, and build in that way a kind of, what would we say, a spiritual structure as opposed to a material business ecclesiastical structure. In the early Christian church, there were obviously points of, of power. Um, local bishops uh, exercised sometimes quite considerable power, but there was no temptation to think that uh, the fate of Christianity depended upon making it with the powers that be. The fate of Christianity depended upon the integrity of the Christian communities, the integrity of the gospel message, the integrity of the life that people were living. Really good uh, sociologist uh, Rodney Stark, now at Baylor University, has, has uh, made the very uh, persuasive and interesting thesis. Early Christianity spread, yes, because the message was effective, yes, because uh, the person of Jesus was attractive, but perhaps most because Christians were simply there in a not very well organized, not too systematic way, Christians were simply there to do acts of kindness, humanity, outreach in situations where uh, Roman culture did not smile favorably on that kind of person-to-person, group-to-group outreach. We know a lot about uh, where Paul went in his missionary journeys because of the writings in the New Testament. But the church and the spread of the message of Jesus in those times went much broader right, than just where did. Paul went. And this, this too has been one of the uh, really uh, interesting results of modern scholarship on missionary movements, the history of Christianity, taking into consideration of where now the great majority of Christian believers in the world live. It's clearer now than it was even 50 years ago that, that the Christian faith spread out eastward from Jerusalem and Judea as well as westward. So in, into Edessa, into now what's modern Iran, Iraq, even in some ways, perhaps even a little bit further into what would now be considered the stands of, of uh, Central Asia. The Christian movement was moving up northwards toward what's contemporary Russia, as well as in the more better studied, more traditionally focused upon movement of the Christian faith westward into the Mediterranean and then eventually northward into Europe. So again, um, the resemblance of the early church centuries to today is, is really remarkable because before the conversion of Constantine, while there was a kind of concentration on the Mediterranean world and, and a, certainly a concentration of where the Apostle Paul had been, where the other disciples had, had carried out their ministry, uh, the, the world Christian picture was broader, looser, less clearly defined than we think about it after the conversion of Constantine. A few years after the, well, a couple of hundred years after Constantine, Rome gets sacked and the, the uh, Roman Empire kind of collapses or implodes. At the same time, there's a, a really interesting thing happening in Ireland. What was important about what, who we now call as St. Patrick? Uh, St. Patrick, fifth century, convert, um, a prisoner, uh, traveling preacher, 
returning to Ireland as, and eventually becoming uh, the key bishop is a person who's operating beyond the borders of established political power. Celtic Christianity uh, was in some sense like what would come later in the 16th and 17th century with Jesuit Roman Catholic Christianity. Truly effective missionary work being done on the strength of the appeal of the message and the uh, integrity of the messengers, not on the reliance on the political background of the powers that were able to supply armies, navies, troops, taxation system. Celtic Christianity is organized. Uh, it, it's, not, um, it's not every man or every woman for himself or herself, but it's organized with, with less concern for structure, order, discipline than, than the uh, parallel movement of Christian faith through Rome into Northern Europe into even Britain. I think what happens eventually, the kind of Celtic and the Roman style of Christian faith do merge. I'm remembering the Council of Whitby and I think the year 661 where Britain was more or less pulled into the Roman orbit. Did mean in some sense that you would have the advantage of Roman ideals of organization, Celtic ideals of spirituality, that would be very effective then in, in, in the missionary movement of Christian faith into Scotland and then across the North Sea into uh, Northern Europe. I've, I've heard it said that, you know, the Benedictine monastic movement started while people were gathering together almost for protection. But uh, the, the Celtic monastic movement actually had a different heart. It was more sense dispersed out. Yes, right? yes. And it is, it's very interesting that you have the ministry of St. Patrick just about the same time as Benedict in um, Italy and, and the Roman world, you had two different ways of responding to tumultuous times, two different ways of responding to um, crisis in the church, crisis in society, and two different ways that were both in their own times and places and cultures effective in preserving, but then also expanding the Christian faith. So one, one is that notion of holding on to faith and orthodoxy, is that one way forward? Yeah, I, would, I, would, I would think that the Benedictine model would have an ideal of orthodox teaching, scriptural foundation, but disciplined life in a kind of system. My understanding of Celtic Christianity is that it would be similar in many ways, except that uh, because there would never be the ideal of a Rome that was lost, never be a, an aspiration for a Rome to return, you would have a little bit more free-flowing uh, Christianity, a little bit more effort, a little bit more opportunity to take individual effort. Uh, some of the stories are pretty wild about uh, uh, Irish monks getting into a boat, sailing out into the sea. Well, what, what are they taking with them? Nothing the Lord will provide. What's gonna happen when you get there? We don't know, the Lord will. That's not a Roman way of uh, approaching things. And it probably wasn't all that effective much of the time, but some of the time, it really, really was effective. And it didn't just stay in Ireland. So the, exactly. you said before that it went to Iona in Scotland, right. then across to Lindisfarne right. in, in right. England, but then it moved into the continent. What were some of the pictures of people that went there? The, the story of St. Boniface is, is really intriguing in the evangelization of Northern Europe. Boniface uh, lives in Britain until I believe he's close to 40 years old. He, he is a monk at the Yarrow uh, Monastery in the east coast of Britain. But in the background is, is the Celtic monastic tradition coming down from Iona in, into uh, Britain, combined with then the, the, the Roman push for order, discipline, not so much control, but just the re regulation. Boniface travels across the uh, 
waters to Northern Europe and uh, lives in what are primitive frontier monasteries, uh, is an effective confrontational voice for Christian faith, not without, uh, he doesn't want, he's, he's not like Charlemagne later who's gonna take the armies to make people converts, but he's gonna preach and practice and through the uh, disciplines of the, of the monasteries are gonna show pagans in Northern Europe that the way of Christ offers, offers a better way and, and he, he's effective. I think it was uh, Christopher Dawson, the great uh, Christian historian and uh, so, sort of interpreter of Western culture who, who said in the post-World War II era that Boniface's missionary work in Northern Europe probably affected the future of Europe, the history of Europe, more than any single person in human history. That's a remarkable statement. That's a remarkable statement. Uh, Columbanus was, came out of the Celtic um, uh, missionary background. What was his influence in Europe? Columbanus um, helped to found several monasteries in what are now France and maybe even over in the border in what was contemporary uh, Germany. I think the significance of, of his ministry, in many ways the ministry of Boniface, um, and eventually you would say Cyril and Methodius as, as um, Roman missionaries in, into um, East, Eastern and East to Central Europe. The missionary strategy was to plant communities of dedicated people, monasteries, occasionally um, nunneries, convents for, for women religious, and to show um, a local community by teaching integrity of life and example of living what the Christian faith should mean. So uh, my understanding is that Columbanus was responsible for the founding of several monasteries of what is now northern France and that northern part of Europe. At their best, the monasteries were not just declarations of the Christian faith, but exemplifications of the Christian faith, and in that respect had a, a major impact. Now, I think it's important to say about all of the early missionary efforts, a lot of them failed. There was a lot of pushback. There was the same kind of, of um, uh, the same kind of, of thing we've seen in our own day where, where missionary ideals far exceed the missionary practice, but having made all proper qualifications, the idea that founding monastic communities in unevangelized reaches of the world, that strategy worked. And for probably 500 years, that was the effective missionary strategy, at least in the European part of the world. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The Protestants tend to forget that almost thousand years. And when we talk about the, the Reformation, there was a church in Europe to be reformed. Well, it had to get there somehow. Right. And, yes, and, indeed. And uh, I do think that the, a little bit of care with um, language really helps out because the Reformation is very much an effort to try to bring life back into an already existing form that was present. Tell us about uh, Ignatius Loyola. Ignatius Loyola is a, a strapping young soldier with not too much interest in the kingdom of God who's wounded in battle about the year 1520 and during his time of recuperation is, is uh, presented with Christian reading that affects him and brings about his uh, serious conversion to the, the, the Christian faith. He takes some time to recuperate. He begins a study for the Catholic priesthood. As he carries out this study for the priesthood directed by others, he begins the process of, of creating what becomes the Ignatian spiritual discipline, a course of study that implores people to contemplate their own need of a savior, their own sinfulness, 
contemplate the uh, beauty of the kingdom of God, contemplate with a strong focus on the gospels, the passion of Christ, contemplate uh, again with a strong focus on the, on the New Testament, the meaning of resurrection life in Christ. Ignatius is not particularly well received in Catholic circles because he is so ardent. Ignatius has an extreme rigor for his own Christian discipline, extreme rigor in how he uh, tries to advance his own journey of faith, but he's also attractive. So he studies in different places, ends up in studying in Paris, and in the early 1530s attracts six other young Catholic priests who are dedicating themselves to go to Jerusalem and to preach the gospel to the Muslims who have loomed large in the mind of Europeans as the great pagan other since the era of the Crusades. The group bands together and pledges themselves to go to Jerusalem to evangelize Muslims, but then to say, if for some reason this doesn't turn out, we will go to the papacy and pledge ourselves to do everything to the Pope for the Pope that he says. It turns out they were not able to go to the, the Near East. They've made a kind of charter for themselves and then applied to the Pope to say, could, could you accept us as your militants for Christ, the Society of Jesus? The Pope's not sure because the reputation of Ignatius as an extremist follows him. So I think it's a, something like a year, or maybe 13 or 14 months before the, after the application is made to create this religious society of Jesus that eventually uh, there, is, there is permission. Remarkably, even before the permission is granted, um, maybe it's because of the first organizing desire to preach in, in and around Jerusalem, the early six Jesuits are all on the move. One of them is Francis Xavier. By the time the Jesuits are officially approved as a missionary order, or as just an order in the Catholic Church, he, he is off the coast of India, exploring what can be done to uh, broadcast the message of Christ as he understands it in, in the heat of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, the Catholic Reformation, what, it, what it's like in, in India. And these people like, um Matteo Ricci, Francis Xavier, de Goes. I mean, they were going to the ends of the earth in a way that the rest of the church wasn't right, right. in that 16th century. I think I, I grew up in circles where people started talking about the beginning of modern missionary activity with William Carey. And, and it's, it's William Carey was an estimable person who did an awful lot, but he, he was late on the scene. Francis Xavier dies in the early 1540s. He's already been to the western coast of India. He's been to southern India. He's been to Malaysia. He has overseen the really uh, important uh, conversion of Japanese, and he dies waiting to go into uh, China. The Jesuits and Catholics in general were far, far ahead of Protestants in missionary activity because of their dedication, but also because of the geopolitical situation. Protestant areas tended to be landlocked in the center part of Europe and were not expanding until we get to the Netherlands and, and uh, Britain later, England later on. Uh, the Jesuits are a, a missionary order, the Augustinians, uh, um, uh, an, an order, uh, eventually Dominicans, Franciscans. They are the key religious energy in the reforming Catholicism of the 16th century, which is aided and abetted by the major European powers of the time. 
uh, particularly uh, France, Portugal, and Spain. France, Portugal, and Spain are expanding their reach around the globe, and they take with them their religious uh, advisors, their, their ministers, who are uh, Catholic priests and, and sometimes members of the orders. And then, to me, the most remarkable thing about the early Jesuits and, and other Catholic missions is their willingness to go out beyond the um, protection of the European powers. Francis Xavier, again, is a real good example. When he goes to uh, India, he is sort of in the orbit of the expansion of Portugal, and he is sort of protected by the expanding power of Christian Europe. When he goes to Malaysia and Japan, he's out beyond the control of European powers. The great uh, novel by Shushaku Endo, Silence, which has been made into a, a pretty good movie, um, gives us a, a, a dynamic picture of Christian faith operating without state support. And that's the thing we scratch our heads now and say, well, of course, that's what in the modern world we have, separation of church and state. That's just what we have. Well, it wasn't what we had. I mean, that, it was just religious allegiance, political authority, political allegiance went hand in hand right back to the days of Constantine and before. Some of the Jesuit missionaries, Robert de Nobili in India, Xavier in Japan, in some ways, um, uh, Jean de Berbeuf in, in Canada, in, uh, in the northern part of, of, of uh, North American continent, were all advancing beyond where um, they had protection from European powers. And that advancing, that, that became eventually a model for other Christian missionary efforts, even when they didn't believe that the Catholics had things right. I mean, it's intriguing when you think about Japan, exactly. as you say, outside of the protection, because it was basically 200 years of awful persecution. So the, 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 the first Catholic mission arrives in the middle of the 16th century in Japan at a time of, of internal Japanese political unrest. So as in many places around the world in the history of Christianity, the Christian message takes root when there's a, a strong presentation of the message and it meets a felt need in the population. So it's a time of confusion, military conflict, intellectual unrest, and that, as it were, opening lasts for 50 or 60 years and, and um, the Catholic evangelization of Japan by the early 17th century is just remarkable. But then comes consolidation of Japanese power and then, as it were, uh, a kind of post-colonial nervousness in the new strong Japanese leaders that if we let this Western faith take root, pretty soon there'll be the Western warships on our borders demanding our, our obeisance. And so you, beginning then in the early 17th century, you have the, the, the uh, very stiff persecution of, of, of Japanese Christians, the, the, the expulsion of Catholic missionaries. A kind of Japanese Catholicism survives. It's attenuated. It's, it looks a little funny over the centuries, but, but it actually is there for when in the mid-19th century, Catholic and Protestant missionaries are able to come to Japan and some of these communities la had lasted under strong persecution and had to be in secret for uh, centuries, but, but were revived. And you, you talk about them being in secret. I mean, not only that, they, they had to prove 
every year that they were not Christian. Right. There, there, was, there was a great deal of dissimulation involved in, in maintaining the, the uh, continuity of Christian existence in Japan, but, but it, it, it did, did exist. It's, it's one of the really interesting stories in the contemporary world because Japan has never been a part of the world where the uh, political, economic superstructure was favorable to the, to the Christian faith. In our post-World War II day, it's, the, the, the Christians have not been persecuted and, and, and killed off, but there's never been a, there's never been a, a kind of uh, impetus from above. And yet uh, the story of Christian faith in, in Jesuit terms, then after the expulsion of the Catholics, in, in the contemporary terms when uh, just remarkable stories of Christian conversion from well-educated musicians who are drawn to the technical complexities of the music of J.S. Bach, who then stay to read the text and are drawn to the savior that Bach writes his music about. So a really interesting part of the world uh, for Christian missions because of the absence of a kind of overarching political structure easing the way for, for missionaries. Obviously a key turning point for the church is uh, Martin Luther and his 95 Theses on the door of the castle church. From a mission ministry point of view, what difference does the Protestant Reformation make? A very strong point, which everyone knows about the, the Protestant Reformation, is the drive of Protestant leaders to have local lay men and women study, read, incorporate the scriptures into their own lives. In order to have that done, the Bible has to be readily available in uh, the local languages, has to be printed in, in uh, forms that are cheap enough for people to buy. And that move is of a long-standing, very dramatic impact on missionary work because eventually, the Catholics again in the lead, but then in the late 18th century, on to the 19th century, Protestants coming on strong and even some Orthodox coming on strong, missionary work becomes, in effect, a broad cultural way of providing the Bible in local languages to people who hadn't heard the Bible before. And that is transformative for the Christian faith. That's transformative for Christianity in the world. So you could say there's a very strong push of Protestant reform in the 16th century. It does not look like it does much missionary to promote missionary activity. But eventually, the Protestant commitment to the scriptures as God's word that can be understood for people in all languages, it doesn't have to be officially in Latin, not like uh, Islam that needs an official Arabic Bible, the scriptures, but that push toward indigenizing the scriptures becomes immensely effective and immensely important in the history of Christianity. The Gutenberg Press and the invention of the Gutenberg Press was very significant. What differences did that make? Probably we could say that the, the move from pre-Gutenberg to Gutenberg is a little bit like the move from pre-television to the modern media. It wasn't as though uh, the, the, the Gutenberg Press just transformed the production of religious materials, Bibles, other things overnight, but it did mean that technologically there, there was a new opportunity. Martin Luther's Reformation begins when independent printers in Germany decide for themselves they're going to print and sell German translations of the 95 Theses that were presented in 1517 in, in, in Latin. Over time, that uh, portability of prints means that missionary activity is, is going to be extended wherever there is literacy 
and then often, as we know, as missionaries themselves, create literate audiences. And then most significantly, um, missionary activity is promoted by what comes from Gutenberg, Gutenberg because once the Christian Bible is translated, it no longer belongs to the translators. It belongs to the people into whose language it has come. And sometimes what the people do with the Bible that they read themselves is different than what the people translated and intended. But that, that transformation, which did take a little while to affect missionary work, has been revolutionary for the whole uh, last five or six hundred years of Christian history. One of the other kind of key points in, in mission and Christian history is, is actually Hudson Taylor going yeah. to China. We look back at the time, it probably didn't feel like such a big deal, but looking back, why was it so significant? Hudson Taylor's um, initiative in, in China it, it was important and remarkable in several different ways. One was his um, um, adoption of what comes to be known as the faith missionary work. He's not going to build a big um, infrastructure. He's not going to be relying upon a particular denominational attachment. He's going to recruit in at first Britain, Canada, the United States, and then eventually more generally. And he's, he's not going to use the agencies and the instrumentalities of denominations or previously existing missionary activities. So first, uh, he, he's a kind of maverick, and we've had a lot of mavericks in the history of Christianity. Most of them go down in flames. Uh, Hudson Taylor did not. He's secondly important for who he recruited as his missionaries. Um, eventually, you, you had some really sharp people go out under the China Inland Mission, as it was called then, who became expert in Chinese literature, experts in the Chinese language. But he did not, for the most part, initially recruit from Oxford and Cambridge, the major universities of the United States. He recruited ordinary, middle, lower middle class men and women who were willing to take the step to become missionaries. And that's the third thing that's important about Hudson, Hudson Taylor. He, he recruited lots of single women who were eager to take their part in the history of Christian mission. Women had always been important for the spread of Christianity, early days, foundation of convents, later days as funders of Catholic missionary efforts, and the early Protestant effort as wives of, of, of Protestant missionaries. Hudson Taylor does something differently. He wants to, uh, not necessarily in theory, but in practice, have women missionaries pull just about the same weight as men missionaries. And that, that really was revolutionary for Christian work, not so revolutionary in the terms of general 19th century uh, European society. And the last thing, the China Inland Mission is important because of the inland. Mm. Um, Missionary activities in China had developed from the mid-19th century, early 19th century. Um, Protestants and Catholics had both been there. They established pretty elaborate regimes. A lot of Bible translation work had gone into China. A lot of uh, investment of Catholic uh, priests, lay brothers and sisters had come to China. But the, the, most of that Christian activity was on the coast, in, in the treaty cities like Shanghai. The China Inland Hudson Taylor said, is going inland. It's going to the places where uh, there, again, is no protection or little protection of the, from the um, European and, and American powers. That missionary work turned out to be immensely significant because it did not rely upon formal political structure. In the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, there's a terrible toll of particularly China Inland 
missionaries, converts to the China Inland Mission because they're, they're away from the uh, 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 protection of Europeans in the treaty ports. There's also a major uh, loss of Catholic Christian lives in the Box Rebellion. But because they're inland, the groups that survived, the groups that outlived the Boxer Rebellion still had a, 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 a reach and an anchorage in the countryside that some of the missions on the treaty ports did not have. And of course, all of that's very significant because in the late 40s, once the communist regime takes over and once it expels foreign missionaries, once it uh, takes uh, strong uh, steps against Chinese Christian leaders who are in the major urban centers, Christianity in China survives in those places inland where there was a long tradition of low-level, non-denominational, not very structural Christian life. So the really uh, great historian of Christianity in modern China, Daniel Bayes, has said, as also Shi Lian, another terrific modern historian of Christianity in China, most of the movements, most of the Chinese Christian groups that are alive today and expanding can trace some kind of effect back to the China Inland Mission as an example of a Western mission that did not rely very much at all upon the support of Western political structures. In the 1960s, the World Council of Churches got together and said there should be a moratorium of mission because they connected mission and colonialism very closely. Uh, how, how do we separate those? How, in your mind, do you separate colonialism and, and mission? Colonialism and mission goes right back to the early Christian centuries. Once the Emperor Constantine is converted, there is a kind of Roman Christian imperialism. Uh, Charlemagne was probably the greatest Christian imperialist of his day. The spring would come around and Charlemagne's armies would go into the field and, and come to a city and said, you need to accept my rule and Christianity will kill you. It was a very effective missionary strategy. <laughs> Not probably true to the character of Christianity, yeah. but a really effective strategy. And then of course, with the expansion of Europe in the 19th and 20th century, we, we have modern colonialism and Europe, North America are the bearers of Christian faith. Over the course of the 20th century, as European power declined, American power in the world increased. American power in the world is soft power. It's economic choice. It, it's uh, uh, ideologies of, of liberty, some of which are probably pretty good, some of which are, are, are not so good. But at least with the American style of colonialism, you don't have the heavy political enforced military protection of, of the churches. I think you could, you could argue that um, in, in the parts of the world where the Christian faith is expanding much more rapidly than other parts, you have something like an American situation. There's no state church in China. There is actually a state church in a few places in Africa, but, but for the most part, you, you have a pluralistic marketplace of ideology in which the Christian faith has to advance by either the teaching, the power of the gospel, the, the, the ability to, to uh, triumph over evil spirits. You have a free-form, post-colonial type of Christianity that's much closer to American style than, than of, of continental and, and, and British. The Christians exercising power almost always overstep what power sh should do. If you use power to advance the Christian faith, there's going to be some difficulties. And in the, in the colonial 
impress around the world. There, there, were, there were progress for the Christian faith, but there were also difficulties. The real progress probably came most from the translation enterprises that were put in place by the colonial powers. Once the colonial powers were gone or discredited, what had been translated remained, and what believers in the world made of the translated scripture would be the future of Christianity. The phrase we're using in this series is to the ends of the earth. And now that Christianity is kind of from a geographical point of yep. view, uh, global, what does to the ends of the earth mean for you? The, the modern transformation of Christianity from, at least in perception, a Western religion to a generally world religion uh, means that uh, if I want to understand what a passage of scripture or the narrative of scripture means for myself, I need to study it, so I'm a Protestant. Um, but I also need to listen to other people. And 50 years ago, a North American Protestant would have wanted to listen to Martin Luther, and John Calvin, and John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Dio Moody. But now, and it's difficult to do, and it has to be mediated in different ways, it's important to listen to voices from outside the Western world. You have to think about the passages that appeared two or three times in the Old Testament about the knowledge of the glory of the Lord spreading as the waters cover the sea. And you think, well, it's happening. And God be praised for that happening. And finally, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. What does Jesus the Game Changer mean for you? So I'm a historian. And uh, even if I couldn't make my living by being a historian, I, th I think that that's what I would do. And, and it's been just a great privilege to be paid to read books and talk to students and try to write books. So I think in historical terms, and um, I think about the, uh, the drama of Christian faith as it had affected different groups and different societies in, in, uh, throughout uh, Christian history. And uh, with Dorothy Sayers, I, I think I want to say that this Christian message is just filled with drama. It, it's a message of hope and relief and comfort and forgiveness wherever it's proclaimed. And uh, it's been a real privilege as a historian to see these things. And then personally, I, I would say that my own sense of the Christian faith has been um, anchored, transformed, transfixed by experiencing the gospel in cross-cultural ways. I was a wan and kind of uh, know-it-all young person raised in a Christian home who was beginning to question almost everything having to do with the Christian faith uh, when I encountered Martin Luther, who was from a different cultural perspective, different time and place, but with a message that resonated to me in terms of a personal need for forgiveness, a savior, a goal in life. and it, sort of, although over the passage of years, flowed on from there for me, me to think that studying the cross-cultural transformation of Christian faith is an appropriate thing to do for someone who was brought to Christian faith by a cross-cultural apprehension of the gospel. It's pulling me out.